Hello, and welcome back to the American Prospects, Prospect Generations podcast. Today, we've got Robert Kuttner, who is co-founder and co-editor of the American Prospect and a professor at Brandeis University's Heller School, together with Remenda Cyrus, who is the John Lewis Writing Fellow at the American Prospect. They're talking about hope, civil rights, political possibilities, and the different uh, mindset and approaches between uh, Bob's generation and Remenda's generation. So without any more delay, let's uh, get to the conversation. So I want to talk about hope. Um, And I want to compare experiences because we are a very different generations. So when I was uh, in my late teen years and uh, early college years, it was a very hopeful time. Um, Kennedy had just gotten elected president and the Cold War, after we almost got blown up with the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Cold War was kind of damping down. And all this great stuff was happening with civil rights sit-ins, freedom rides, Dr. King, the Civil Rights Acts. And so, you know, even though that period only lasted seven or eight years before Vietnam ruined it all and before the horrible assassinations of 1968, that seven or eight years in the mind of a young person imprints you with a kind of hopefulness. The economy was getting better. And then it just all just, uh, I think I can say it all turned to shit. It really did all turn to shit. And, and uh, so... And then I guess the next period of hopefulness was when the Cold War ended and it looked like there was going to be peace. And then Obama gets elected president. And that was a period of hopefulness. And then, of course, that all went down the drain. So I guess my question is, then on top of that, you've got global climate change and you've got the rise of something very much like fascism everywhere. So I have my own thoughts on how I keep up my sense of hope and possibility, but I wonder what your experience is like and how you keep up your sense of hope and possibility and how that affects you as a journalist. Well, I think that, like, generationally, there's, for my my generation and sort of, like, the beginning of it, like, I'm kind of in a weird spot because... I'm sort of like a young millennial old Gen Z type person. Um, so like for me, generally my experience has been like with like kind of the, the shit part, like in the back of my mind always. And thinking about the way I know that like, like one that always comes up is like 9-11, right? Your like nine eleven is like a period of time where we're all being like formulated and stuff like that. Um, but even for me, like I was so like young, but I know that that's one thing that had like a really big kind of impact on the world. But it wasn't something that I like directly experienced. You know, like I can't remember it happening or um, really anything like that. You know. Um, but I know that that's one thing that, like, really changed the world from then to now. Like, keeping up hope is weird because I see the push and pull that you're talking about. 
um, I see the the way it kind of ebbs and flows. So I guess I kind of sustain on that maybe, like knowing that there will be a better period of time that will come and it might not come how I expect it and it might not come easily, you know? I kind of keep that alive. And I know like as my like my role as a journalist is like to kind of keep pushing that direction even if things feel, you know, hopeless or they feel like there's a lot of despair. I feel like there's a lot of despair. Like, I know that that's one thing that, like, I can do as a journalist. Like, I, because one thing that I really take pride in in this profession is knowing that you can always be on kind of the right side of the fight, maybe. Like, you can always kind of, like, you can plant your flag somewhere, and as long as you can, like, pick up that flag and move around, you know, you can always be pushing, like, towards something positive. Um, and I don't know. I think that maybe maybe my age has a lot to do with that, you know? Um, because, I don't know, I imagine, like, after going through it and, it, like, going through it, like, it's good, it's bad, it's good, it's bad, you get, like, tired. <laughs> and, like, you just kind of, like, I don't know. I don't know if you feel this way. I Like, I would be curious to hear. But, like, are you ever just, like gosh, I wish things could just be better. Like, we've been going through this for so long. Like, you know, I don't know. Do you ever feel that way? Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, <clears throat> my my favorite quote <clears throat> is the quote from the uh, essay by Albert Camus, The Myth of Sisyphus, where, you know, Sisyphus was this figure from Greek mythology who was condemned to push a rock up to the top of the hill only to have the rock fall down the hill. <clears throat> and you would think Sisyphus would just be in despair all the time. But the last line of that essay, Camus says, one must imagine Sisyphus happy. And you say to yourself, happy? Why happy? And the answer is the joy is in the struggle. The joy is that you keep fighting. You keep pushing that rock up. Sometimes the rock stays put for a long time. And so if we relate this to what we do professionally, if we relate this to journalism, I find some of the stories that I write um, are very critical, but other stories kind of give me a sense of possibility and a sense of hope. So Biden turned out to be a lot better than most of us thought. That gives me a sense of hope. Um, the labor movement is really doing more organizing than it has done in a long time. And that gives me a sense of possibility and hope. And, um, you know, you, you look at the recent midterm elections, Democrats did a lot better than they were expected to. And there are some states now that are just wall to wall progressive states like California. So, and then there's some progress on climate. If we can, if we can just get ahead of it before it all falls apart. So, I guess some of what I write gives me a sense of possibility and hopefulness, and some of it just makes me feel like slitting my wrists. So I wonder, relating this to, to stuff that you write about, what of the stories that you've written about give you a sense of hopefulness? Well, I was going to say like something related. I can, I, I'm, I'll, I'll certainly answer that question, but that kind of gave me a thought because like, one way that I actually feel really hopeful as a journalist is that, like, 
I've been welcomed, welcomed into a lot of spaces that have traditionally been like closed off to me. Um, as a young black female journalist, you know, like it's, I think about like, you know, the people that forced the path and it was so, it was so hard to be taken seriously and to be welcomed and to be, and I feel, I feel like, you know, like giving the creative avenue to like explore those stories, like some of the ones that give me hope, I guess, I guess the labor ones do give me hope, but they also make me kind of, um, I don't know, tired maybe because like, I don't know. It's such a, it's like, it was, it was such a part of our society that like stagnated and like, you're entirely right. There's like a lot more happening now, but as it kind of like revamps itself, there's a lot of like dusting off the cobwebs, I think. So, you know, we go through this, this rigmarole of, you know, the, the same one that we all, that we always have, that you always have to go through this to get a union or to just push the union further or to actually fight for rights, get a contract, etc. The ones that I feel most hopeful about are, I think, probably the cultural ones. Because I feel like culturally, as I feel like if I feel like everything kind of goes back and forth, but I do feel like culture pushes forward a little bit more consistently. There's now the ability to like call out a lot of things to really assess how like they make us feel like as people. There's a lot of spaces for people to be, you know, themselves. Whereas, like, even if, even if it's hard, you know, or even if, like, there's certainly, like, a sector of people out there that don't want people to be themselves, I think that that kind of um, is, like, changing, too. And I feel like I see that culturally. So anytime I get to write about, like, the way culturally we're moving forward, the way culturally we have more, like... Um, insight to things like that really gives me a lot of joy and that gives me hope. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, one of the things that makes me hopeful anytime I do a story that involves actually talking to people who are doing organizing, mm. um, I, you know, I see 20 year olds who are doing this and they're just full of energy, but I see 80 year olds who are still doing it. Mm-hmm. And you wonder how can they be still doing it? And so it's great that people, Starting out, it's natural for young people to be hopeful, to see a sense of possibility. They have their whole life before them. But the old guys and the old gals are still fighting like hell as well. And that's, that's good because the only, the only way we're going to build a decent society is by not ceasing to struggle for it. And I think to, to take the prospect as, as an example, I mean, we keep getting up in the morning and doing these stories. We don't. We don't have the luxury of being depressed uh, mm-hmm. or, or giving up, and uh, it's our job to to tell these stories. Well, I mean, I think that there's still room to be depressed. Oh, you can be <laughs> depressed, but be depressed on your own time. <laughs> sure, Bob. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm not saying be a Pollyanna. I mean, half the stories I write are investigative stories about hideous wrongdoing. So I, I think you have to be optimistic without illusions. You can't pretend that things are great when so many yeah. things are going down the drain. 
but at the same time, it's uh, it's important to counterbalance the investigative stories about all the things that are going wrong with with you know some stories that build hope. Now that's just yeah, that's just well, the way I, I'm wired. Maybe maybe some well, other people are happier doing stories that are all critical all the time. I agree. I don't think that. I mean, I don't think we can really sustain ourselves that way. I think even like you know, obviously, there's a million different ways to look at how the world is horrible. But yeah, that story gets the story gets old. The story gets a little bit tired, and like it is part of our job as journalists to think about like because it doesn't do anything to change it. You know, if everyone's down at the same time all the time. So as journalists, yeah, we can be part of the like the effort to lift some people up while others are down, you know. Like I think the movement kind of like you know, any movement kind of has to shoulder the weight of the others' ills, you know. Um kind of like thinking about like intersectionality. You know, black people have to balance the weight of understanding like, you know, like immigration burdens. Or the, and you have to understand like the intersection of both of those things, you know, like people that are black immigrants exist, for example, or the way like the queer community needs to understand that like black queer people exist, but also black people have a unique struggle on their own that, you know, is separate from the queer struggle, but also how like, you know, the black queer movement, I think, has done like a pretty good job of like, lifting each other up um, for the most part, you know, like, and kind of understanding that because, like, there's so many things that come together. So, yeah, I think that, like, any movement has to has to strike that balance. You know, if, if you look at California, which is now a majority-minority state, th- there are conflicts among different groups, Asians, Latinos, African-Americans, but the fact that it's a majority-minority state means that this is going to be a blue state forever. And even though there are differences, there are fights about, you know, affirmative action. Is, is the University of California becoming too Asian because uh, uh, Asians, for whatever cultural reasons, uh, do very well in high school and on test scores and, you know, without getting into ethnic stereotypes, depending on, on, on what the Supreme Court does about uh Affirmative action, if affirmative action as we know it is prohibited, that's going to reduce uh, the African-American representation at the elite universities even more. So there are these conflicts. God knows there are these conflicts. And yet, despite the conflicts, there's a kind of a broad coalition. And the Republican Party and the right wing is close to dead in California because uh, the power of these coalitions has created a kind of not quite wall-to-wall progressive state, but a state that is reliably progressive. And so you wonder uh, if, if this can happen in other states. Can this happen in New York? Can this happen in uh, Texas? And um, so that gives me a sense of hope. And, and yet it's almost like, and you can speak to this better than I can, the, the more progress uh, African-Americans make uh, in terms of cultural advance and acceptance, uh, the more angry white racists get and the more brutal police get. 
And so you got this kind of dialectic of, of progress on the one hand and then, then horrible, disgusting backsliding on the other hand and living with that sense of conflict, uh, of progress breeding anger and progress breeding racism. That's something that really depresses me. And you, you, you go all the way back to 1619 and, and, and see the struggle for progress and then the repressiveness that, that follows. And that's, that's been the experience for the entire history of the American Republic. Hey, it's Ryan Cooper, Managing Editor here at The Prospect. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Prospect Generations. But I also invite you to enjoy our affiliated podcasts. Alexi the Greek and myself host Left Anchor, where we discuss politics, theory, and the left with the best writers and thinkers. You can also join comedian and prospect contributor Francesca Fiorentini for The Bituation Room, a humorous roundup of the week's news with plenty of bitching. You can find Left Anchor and The Bituation Room wherever you get your podcasts. And if you subscribe to The Prospect as a Power Level member, you can unlock bonus content for each of them. What a deal! For more information or to sample the shows, visit prospect.org slash podcasts. Let's get back to the show. Yes, I guess, like, it's just not, that's maybe not, like, I, I guess I see what you're saying, because that's not new, right? I guess I was just saying that a lot of those perceived advancements don't necessarily coincide with real ones, so it becomes sort of a, like, like, almost like a dog whistle, you know? like a distractor from all the ways, you know, we could be having real discussions, you know, instead we have months long, years long conversations about critical race theory, which I'm like, I'm so glad that's dead. Like we're kind of, we're dying, whatever. Like it's just, it's letting like Republicans make a really good enemy. And like they like they like doing it to themselves because they know that they've like captured their audience in such a way that they can be the enemy in any way and it's not gonna change anything. Which is like a whole a whole thing. But as far as like, you know, like black progress, like I think that gain I think that those that gain those little advancements, you know, I don't know what they really mean without sort of like without that white rage. Like, what does it mean? Like if we were to just like, if something, if, if something good were to happen, you know, um, some sort of, you know, like if there, if something, if something good were to happen and we didn't have that pushback, you know, what, where could the conversation go? You know, like if there was just the space to, really talk about whatever it is, you know? Like, I thought that the, like, like, the monument that was unveiled, like, the, the Colonel Scott King and Martin Luther King one, I thought that that could, that that was a good time, a, a moment where, like, there could have been really good and interesting discourse. I don't know. Instead, it was kind of just, like, chopped off at the head, if you will. Like, it was just, there was, there was no really, there was no real chance to really get there. I don't know if you've seen it or not. Well, I, I was thinking of just more mundane stuff like the 1965 Voting Rights Act is passed. 
it makes a huge difference. African-Americans get to register, they get to vote. And then, you know, 30 years later, the Supreme Court cuts the heart out of it by deciding that Section 5 is unconstitutional. Yeah, I mean, that's like the long con by Republicans, though, right? Like, that's like the long, that's the result of, like, a long campaign, along with, like, any Roe Wade, all these things, you know? Like, we could talk about how, like, there's, like, a period of time where good things happened, and then Republicans organized very well to decimate it. Yep. You want to talk about organizing? <laughs> like, um, where, where do you see places where constructive dialogue actually takes place? I mean, okay. I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't say, you know, just like in journalism, you know, I feel like there's much less of a tolerance for like bad journalism now. And, you know, some people get away with it. Some people get called out on it. But also, like, we're, we coalesce, you know, on social media now, right? Like, we all kind of group together on our different platforms and have our different discussions in different places. Like, I do, I do appreciate Twitter for the reason of, like, as much as I, like, I don't maybe go on it that much or use it that much. Like, I do appreciate the, like, vastness of it that can... And also, like, Black People Twitter has a lot of good, like, uh, good and bad discourse. Like, it's sometimes interesting discourse, but, like, it's also, like, sometimes a little, like, reductive. But, like, it's spaces like those that are at least, like, having those conversations. Like, I've seen a bunch about, you know, anti-Semitism in the Black community, homophobia in the Black community, etc. So, like, those conversations are happening just, like, among the <laughs> the more, <laughs> maybe, uh, who pays on the first date type uh, questions. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I had a question for you, Bob, actually. I feel like you've, so like, you know, you've been in this much longer and um, I know that you've had, you know, a hand in the kind of politics game a lot. So I was wondering, like, what pet, what piece, what like, are there any like specific pieces of legislation like that have like made you hopeful? Um, I mean, either under Biden or before. Because um, sometimes it's hard for me to kind of keep the very specific pieces of legislation on my, you know, like, like I can think of like the broad m- movements that people are, that like legislators are sure. doing. Yeah. Well, let me, let me mention several. So when, when I was young, um, you know, we had three amazing breakthrough pieces of civil rights legislation that had been on the shelf for a hundred years. I mean, we had the Civil Rights Act in 1964 which established uh, public accommodations rights and uh, interstate transportation rights or uh, transportation generally and education rights. And then we had the, the Great Voting Rights Act of 1965 and then the Fair Housing Act of 1968. So that, that was fantastic. That was just epic and transformational. And then when I worked uh, maybe 10 years later, 
in um, in the Senate, we were able to write and pass the Commun- Community Reinvestment Act, which basically barred redlining and went beyond barring redlining and required banks to affirmatively seek out opportunities to uh, make mortgage loans and small business loans in uh, in low income and minority communities, and that was that was just fantastic to to see those victories and then uh, more recently the the piece that i just wrote in the february issue of the prospect was about these three amazing pieces of public infrastructure and uh, climate legislation that that biden was able to get through congress um, spending over 5 trillion dollars bringing back tech jobs to america and using infrastructure to modernize the country and create new good, good jobs and uh, bring things like broadband to communities that were underserved. And that's just only in my adult lifetime. I mean, you go back further to, to the great legislative victories of Roosevelt's era, you know, there's, there's a lot to celebrate. And, uh, you know, on the other hand, um, a lot of backsliding. So my life experience is that there are moments, they're, they're too brief where you get progress and then there's reaction and backsliding and the other side gets organized and taps into the anger of people who feel that they've been left out. And um, it's also a constant struggle after this legislation gets passed to actually implement it. So, I mean, after the financial collapse of 2008, you know, they passed the Dodd-Frank Act, which was pretty good to try and clean up the banking sector, and yet little by little by little, the enforcement of it just gets whittled away. And I know the prospect right now, looking at the fact that Republicans have the House, and so there's almost nothing we can accomplish uh, legislatively other than uh, preventing Republicans from passing bad legislation. Dave Dayen, our executive editor, I think very correctly positions the prospect to write about all the things that can be done by executive action. And it turns out that a lot of things can be done uh, by executive action, like reviving antitrust and competition policy. So, um, you know, a lot of good stuff gets done, and it doesn't get done without tremendous, tremendous struggle. The, 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 the three great Civil Rights Act of the 1960s were, were built on Decades and decades of organizing, people giving their lives sometimes. And same with the anti-redlining legislation. And uh, it took a tremendous amount of organizing to get all the infrastructure bills passed. But that's that's the kind of stuff that uh, that gives me a sense of hope, that, that there are these windows. That's the point. The windows of possibility are too brief, and you have to take advantage of them. And then the windows close. And then you just have to fend off uh, all of the bad stuff. And uh, I guess I'm encouraged by the fact that uh, just back on the last subject you were talking about, that workplaces are more diverse than they used to be. And that means people have to talk to each other, that, that you can't pretend that your colleagues don't have a different life experience than you do unless you're a really sour person, you're sort of forced to engage with people who are different from you. And you learn things about them. You learn things about yourself. 
And that's one of the real benefits of, of having a society where it's not just diverse on paper, but it's diverse in the classroom. It's diverse in the workplace. It's diverse in the neighborhood. And uh, I'm enough of an optimist to believe that as people learn about more, more about each other's experience, it, it doesn't make them hate each other more. It makes them sympathize with each other more. Yeah. I mean, I can agree with that. Um, the, I mean, I, like I said, I think of it as kind of like growing pains. Like you have to listen to the hard things before you can start to understand the harder things and like everyone can start to, you know, work to eliminate them together. But, you know, obviously that starts with having the ability to communicate and space to communicate. But definitely, um, thank you by the way, because, I mean, I don't know, it feels... It feels like there's been a lot of not, like, more bad than good in my lifetime. Um, which, you know, I'm enough of an optimist to think that if I, you know, there will be a time when things will be better. Um, in, like, ways that, like, I can really see them being better. It just hasn't happened yet. (laughs) It has a lot more, like, there's a lot of, um... Um, people, people, you know, get down on each other and, like, we let people divide us in a way, you know, but also, like, some of those divisions are, like, everyone has a hand in and, <laughs> um, I, I know, I know that some good things have happened, but I don't, I don't, I guess I don't blame people who, like, have a harder time keeping up hope in my generation. I don't, I don't blame them. No. It's easy to feel a despair, I think, but I, that, that's another reason, again, why I love being this. Like, you, you have a reason to look on the bright side. You have a reason. <laughs> if anything, it gets you paid, right? Like, if nothing else, so that's... Um, well, one, one, of the, one of the things I love about being a journalist is that it makes you cultivate the ability to listen. And the only way you learn anything about a story that you're reporting is by listening to the person or the people that you're interviewing. And all of us talk too much. You know, we all have big egos. We love to hear the sound of our own voice. We love to talk too much. But if you don't cultivate the ability to listen, you're not going to go anywhere as a journalist. You don't, you don't, you don't report a story by hearing yourself talk. You, you report a story by shutting up and listening very actively to whoever it is that you're interviewing and that's how you learn stuff and that that was very good for me when i was younger i talked too much i probably still talk too much but the only way the only way to the only way to learn stuff as a journalist is to cultivate the ability to listen and um my late wife was a psychologist and she spent most of her life listening to her patients and um, um, they say that the key to being a good parent is active listening, paying attention to what your kid is really trying to convey to you. And so I think it's a privilege being a journalist because you you get to cultivate that skill if you're any good at it. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of that is being able to have like 
the empathy and perspective that you should listen that like a that's how you get the story or that's how you get a good story but b that's what people need and that's what the people that you're talking to need a lot of the time or want you know and with so many different stories in the world it's like if you want or need your story to be told like someone someone should listen to you and like that's you know definitely how we grow and how how things get better for people I've had like a couple of instances over my career where like I really had to just listen I couldn't uh like some some sometimes it was just so sad that it was like what can you say what can you do besides listen you know um you know with like trauma reporting and stuff but there's also the times when you have to like balance trying to trying to like get the story so it can be told too I run into that as well um so yeah but I definitely know what you mean there's times when there's you you have to always just listen to people well, and, a, and a good journalist is kind of channeling the narrative that people are telling them. You're, you're giving voice to people who may not have voice. Yeah, for sure. That's one of the things that I've always enjoyed the most. Because, I mean, I found, a, I found sort of a little home in this niche, you know, where, like, I, 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 found, I found the people most willing to listen to my story were other journalists, I think. Um... And as someone who who's seen a lot of different stories, you know, and know that mine has something to bring, and so does yours, and so does theirs. Like it was nice to find meet other people that also understood that. Uh, I, if I can say I got anything out of uh, journalism school, <laughs> um, I definitely got that. Other things too, but definitely not. Yeah, I think. I, I think hearing stories is how we understand each other and the popularity of programs like This American Life or the or the, the popularity of, of storytelling on podcast podcasts is is testament to that. I definitely yeah, podcasts are another good medium that I think good storytelling and good um, conversations are happening. It's kind of a wading through the water type thing with podcasts, <laughs> um, trying to get to the the couple of good ones in a CD. Uh, but it can definitely be worth it, and I'm glad we're doing this too. I'm glad the prospect is like kind of throwing our our line out there, because um, I think I think conversations like these are important. Like Bob and I, you and I, you Bob, you and I are very different. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I think it's important for like both of us to be able to talk to each other and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, the, the prospect once had a slogan, policy as narrative. And what we meant by that was you take public issues and you put real people into them and you talk about how these dry policy questions affect the lives of actual people. If you just do it as kind of dry, abstract policy, Maybe six people are going to read it. But if you tell the story in terms of how it affects real people's lives, then then it's compelling. And your readership starts caring about, well, if we do this, 
it'll have the following effect on people. But if we do that, it'll have a very different effect on people. And it, it, it brings some of these dry abstract issues, uh, to life in a way that grips readers. Because one of the things we have to do as journalists is not just tell good stories. We have to attract readers. Somebody has to want to read it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the rub of journalism. I think it's like balancing what you, exactly what you want to write and writing it exactly how people want to read it too. Uh, you know, which side you stay true to in some ways kind of defines who you are as a journalist, but not all the way, but like, <laughs> um, where you having to like choose where, where you kind of lay, lay down there is like, is something that we have to do consistently. All right. I think this has been good. Yeah, this has been very good. This, this seems to be a good place to wrap up and mm-hmm. let's continue the conversation. All right, cool.